Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. All right. Well, I have the honor this week to welcome onto the podcast, Dr. Will Varner. And Dr. Varner has a special place in both my heart as well as in my my wife's heart because we both went to TMU. And I didn't actually get to take a class from you, Dr. Varner, at TMU while I was there. But uh, I quickly uh, took a class from you as soon as possible at the seminary when you came and taught a Jude Second Peter class. And I just really benefited from that. It's really exciting to have you on the show, and I'm excited for what you'll have for us. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. I forgive you for not taking any of my courses. <laughs> Will you forgive me for not seeing more of your baseball uh, games? I, I will forgive you. However, I, I think this is something that needs to be mentioned here is that I was so impressed with how much time you did spend at athletics, especially basketball. I mean, every time I looked, you were in the stands watching uh, athletics. I think that's a little known fact about you is you're a very ardent uh, sports supporter. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Well, uh, I just uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with with you. Um, I've talked about you a little bit on the podcast and also just and all my students that uh, that uh, have the either blessing or curse of having me in class. Uh, they <laughs> they get to know about you. Uh, and so I, I think it's, it's worthwhile mentioning that not only are you, you know, a faithful exegete in the academic realm, teaching Greek and, and life of Christ and a variety of classes on the academic scale things, but you're also a faithful pastor at Grace Community, uh, pastoring the sojourners, and you've been faithfully ministering. Uh, and that's one thing that's always struck me is just uh, observing your desire not to just be you know, a talking head, but to really just minister faithfully. So I appreciate that. And one of the newest projects, uh, we're going to talk about being the Passion Week, uh, your newest book that you just came out. We're going to talk a little bit about that and, and how that impacts our discussion. But before we jump into that, one of the things I just found out about, uh, from, partially from your announcement on Facebook in the Nerdy Language Majors group, which you actually helped uh, start, one of the... Uh, I guess you could say newest projects that you're dealing with would be the new Bible translation, or I don't know if you could call it a new Bible translation, but the legacy uh, standard Bible. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and uh, how that project got started and what your involvement is and what the future plan is for that. Well, uh, Peter, I'm under no gag order in that regard, but I am limited in what I can say. Dr. MacArthur has, has said uh, adequate uh, that uh, nobody is here to attack the New American Standard Bible. Uh, he loves it. We love it. But uh, all recognize that maybe there's some areas that could be improved. Uh, probably the most uh, significant changes that readers will notice in the Old Testament is that we do favor uh, the covenant name of God, uh, Yahweh, uh, whereas it's just uh, in most Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uh, we are actually spelling that out. Another thing is Dr. MacArthur, it's very important to him that doulos means slave. And uh, sometimes if it's just servant, it softens the semantic meaning of, of that word. Um, so, so those are big changes. The other ones are smoothing out uh, the English 
Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that the NASB uh, uh, editors love the semicolon. It's all over the place. Now, that's not a big thing, but uh, maybe we'll take a look at some punctuation and also some smoothing out of expressions that will make the verse flow a little bit better, while at the same time being faithful to the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds really good. And I think it'd be helpful. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Is there, what's the timeline on that? How, how long do you think that'll take? Well, uh, we are working, uh, oh, day and night, but uh, the lack of classes <laughs> has helped us to be able to spend more time. And uh, by the middle of June, we hope to have the New Testament revision finished. By September, my Old Testament colleagues uh, hope to have the Old Testament finished. All of this with a goal next March of having a New Testament Psalms and Proverbs, uh, a, a handy uh, edition of the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs in anticipation of the full, complete uh, Legacy Standard Bible finished, I don't know, but sometime in the latter part of 2021. Wow. Yeah. So that's moving right along. That, that's exciting. I, I like that. So uh, that, that's great. Thanks for giving us an update on that. I, uh, I was uh, contemplating if we were going to have any, uh, uh, I guess you could say, unique Varnerisms in the, in the text or anything, but I guess we'll wait and see for that. So, <laughs> Well, uh, I'm part of a committee. Okay, I'm part okay. of a committee, so so it's not just me. So we all uh, hash those things out together and end up we vote. And uh, well, I can't say that I always win on that vote, but <laughs> uh, but uh, nothing radical, nothing strange that will say, "Oh wow, this is weird." Uh, not not at all. But I think it will be an improvement. Okay, excellent, excellent. Well, I'm, I'm excited. I'm lo I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for your work on that. Well. We do have a exciting week here, the Passion Week, and uh, you just came out with a book not too long ago, uh, and it's called Passion About the Passion Week. I got to see, uh, or I had the privilege of seeing a pre-publication copy. I, I appreciated that, reading through it. I actually was reading through it on the plane to Israel, so that was a lot of, uh, a lot of fun just to see fresh uh, through, through fresh eyes, as it were, uh, once I hit the ground. So I was I was really thankful for that. Do you want to? I know a little bit about the background story. Do you want to give maybe the background story of how this uh, this book came into writing? What the what the setting was for that? Well, let me give you the long range briefly, and then I'll give you the short range that prompted the writing. The long range okay. is that I've been teaching the life of our Messiah for about thirty years uh, in an institution on the East Coast, the Institute of Biblical Studies. Before I came to Masters. And since Masters, uh, I've been there, and from 1999 on, I've been teaching almost yearly the life of the Messiah. So I, um, I, I've examined the Passion Week, of course, in detail and started to see, well, you know, maybe this is not exactly the way we're, we're viewing it. Is, is it biblical or not? So, so that um, has been growing in my mind over the last, last few years, maybe someday. I'll write a book on this. Uh, but then last May, um, I'm on my way to the airport with my dear wife and 30 people to go to Israel. I'm going to tell you, Peter, uh, this is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. 
we checked in through LL security. We checked our bags. Everything was checked in. We went to the gate, the actual gate that goes to the plane. And I show them my passport. I show them my ticket. My wife and I get on a little shuttle bus that takes us out to the remote LL terminal. And Peter, I'm telling you, we're walking up. We're within 15 feet of the entrance to the plane, and I cannot find my passport. Well, you know, it's somewhere. Okay, good. In my pocket. I'm, I'm telling you, Peter, I almost stripped <laughs> wow. searching for that passport, and we couldn't find it. The LL stewardess is at the gate of the plane and says, you need to get on now. I, I, I looked at my dear wife. I said, honey, get on the plane. I'll join you when I can. And let me tell you, Peter, it was like a kick in the gut, um, uh, not having that passport and watching that LL jet taxi down the runway with my wife and 30 people on there that I was going to be leading in Israel. And then coming home to an empty house and three days that, see, that was on a Monday, middle of the day. I couldn't get a passport till Tuesday, uh, I'm sorry, Friday, middle of the day. So I've got Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday open. And I'm sort of feeling sorry for myself. Oh, woe is me. Oh, God, why did you do this to me? I'm trying to get my head around this, and I don't understand that. And I said, hey, listen, maybe this is the time. So I got out my computer, set at the same table where I'm sitting right now, Peter. And I began writing. As, as much therapy for me, Peter, as it was for my future readers, uh, so I began writing uh, this book, and I got about a third of the way through it uh, by Friday when I went and got my passport on the way to the airport and then joined my wife and the group Saturday evening in Tiberias for the last day on the Galilee trip and then uh, was able to join them for the rest of the Jerusalem trip. So it was a bit of a therapy for me, Peter. Uh, because, wow, what better thing to keep you from feeling sorry for yourself than meditating and thinking about the suffering uh, of our Lord and what he went through. Amen. Yeah, that's that's very providential. And of course, you know, I, I cringe when you tell that story just because I know how initially heartbreaking that can be. But yes, you know, I'm thankful, oh. obviously, that the Lord worked that out because we yep. are beneficiaries of that work then, uh, putting all of those thoughts, which have been ruminating in your mind for all these years, uh, putting it down on paper. Yeah. I really wonder if that hadn't happened, I'm not sure that book would be in front of us today. <laughs> right. If, if you asked me at the time, would you trade this for that? I don't think I would <laughs> say I'll trade this for that, but having happened, uh, I, uh, uh perhaps this is the result of how the Lord used uh, meditating on the suffering of our Lord to minister to my own suffering at that time. <laughs> well, I, I've read through the book and I just am really, really pleased with the final result. I think having talked to you a little bit, I think you are as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Um, who, who's your target audience? What are you, what are you trying to get across big picture? Um, even uh, the photograph contribution, I think that adds a lot to it. Maybe give us just a bird's eye view of the book. Sure. Well, my wife, bless her heart, says, uh, honey, uh, someday, uh, every now and then, write a book for the rest of us. Because <laughs> I've written some technical commentaries on James and Philippians. 
I've written on Jewish Christian debates in the early church. Uh, uh, I, I just finished a commentary. Can you believe Peter on second Clement? I didn't say second Corinthians. I said second <laughs> Clement, which is one of the apostolic fathers. Uh, well, uh, Helen says, honey, every now and then write a book for the rest of us. So a few years ago, I wrote a devotional commentary on Psalms quote for the rest of us. And I think this book, while I do think it has a scholarly academic basis, it is written not for academics. It's written for uh, the average person, particularly this week, who wants to think deeply about the suffering and the resurrection and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's written, quote, for the rest of us, unquote. <laughs> I like that. And I would say, too, uh, in addition to that, even... Uh, well, like you said, even though it's not uh, not necessarily written to the academic uh, uh, vocabulary wise and things like that, it definitely you even use some of the uh, foundation of the things that you've obviously been working on for years to come up with the points that you're making. So it's it's not uh, in the same category as maybe our daily bread, but at the same time, it's not a high intense academic journal article. I think you. Yeah, I think you've nailed it, Peter. At the end of every chapter, I say for further reading, and I suggest one or two uh, academic books that'll explore this subject, uh, you know, a little more in detail, uh, rigorously uh, from an academic viewpoint. So uh, hopefully it's uh, not an either or book. It's a both and book, both uh, for the just average everyday Christian who wants to know and love the Lord Jesus more but it's also got, hopefully, an academic basis. Yeah, that's that's really good. Well, like you said, you can, I mean, and anybody who's taken Life of Christ, that was my wife, one of my wife's, if not uh, the favorite class uh, of hers, uh, one of her favorite classes in college was the Life of the Messiah. And it's, uh, th that kind of class just has a, a impactful uh, nature to it because you're studying our Lord and our Savior. And there's there's just something special about studying this week in particular, the Passion Week. Uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into why you put so much focus into that and just how some of the things that are portrayed in that week really bring to life uh, some of this connection between what Jesus is doing in his, in his ministry? Good. Yeah, well, uh, let's look at the Gospels. 35 percent of the gospel material has to do with uh, from uh, the triumphal entry through the death, burial, resurrection, uh, uh, and ascension. Luke records the ascension in his last chapter of our Lord, 35 percent. As a matter of fact, a couple of the gospels actually tilt over 40 percent of their material. So I've tried to carve out in my Life of Christ course at least one-third of the course dealing with the Passion events. Why? Because I'm creating it? No, because the Gospels themselves. Somebody has said that each Gospel really is a prelude to the Passion Week. Well, I'm not sure I would go that far, Peter, to say that <laughs> The first uh, eight uh, or nine chapters of Mark are simply a prelude. I think that might be overstating it, but I know why that person said that. It is because 35% of uh, each gospel on an average deals with these last events. So simply from the viewpoint of the amount of 
material given to the Passion Week uh, is, is so much, maybe we ought to pay more attention to it. The ministry of our Lord Jesus prior uh, to his suffering, of course, is, is vital, absolutely vital. Uh, but we ought to give at least one-third of, uh, of our attention to uh, the Passion Week and events after, uh, because the Gospels uh, do that. And um, when Paul uh, said uh, the Gospel is um, he died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he rose again according to the Scriptures, obviously at the very heart of the Gospel, which I'm saying nothing new to our hearers, is the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. One thing about that is that um, I'm not in a liturgical church, Peter. I don't follow a church calendar. I'm pretty much an independent, you know, non-denominational guy like many of our hearers. But, you know, um, we, we have Easter week. We celebrate the resurrection, uh, excuse me, the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection. But in some churches, they, they, they celebrate the Ascension, uh, the Day of Ascension, uh, and it's on the church calendar. Now, most of us don't, and that may tend to make us think that the Ascension is, oh, well, it's, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, it's true, but, but, but yet it's, it, it's very vital. As a matter of fact, I would take the Resurrection and the Ascension together, that, mm. uh, that uh, Jesus died so that he might. Uh, ascend into heaven. So perhaps uh, an an, uh, emphasis on the ascension and what Jesus is doing now as a result of his death, burial, resurrection, ascension is very, very vital. And it's very, very vital to the writer of Hebrews as well. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think that that's well said. Uh, On that note, what do you think? I mean, again, most uh, most of us are coming from a a very laid back, we don't want to get into traditional molds kind of thing. We kind of shy away from the Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox way of doing things a lot of times. But uh, I know you have mentioned on occasions that there can be there can be a helpfulness to intentionally doing things to either devotionally or just set your mind at at the right focus during times like this. Are there any things that you do during uh, or that you've done in the past uh, over the Passion Week or maybe even over Good Friday through Easter Sunday that that you've any special readings or things like that that you encourage people to do to kind of set the set the tone in focusing on this special time? Yes. And churches that follow. I mean, a, I uh, should say I should say apart from reading your, your book on that time period. Oh, course. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I do not come from a, a church with a liturgical year. I don't follow Lent. I don't give up meat for Lent or anything. I don't give up anything for Lent. But uh, though I don't follow that um, uh, practice, uh, I try to read through a gospel uh, over the 40 days of Lent. In my nerdy language majors, I'm posting every day, day one, Luke one, day two, Luke two. And uh, now I try to do it in the Greek New Testament. And I'm doing Luke this year. And uh, right now we're on the Passion Week uh, 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 events of Luke. So it, it finishes well because the last week of the readings are the last few chapters of Luke. And so that really uh, keeps me focused. I think, uh, you know, uh, not following Lent, but instead of giving up 
something during those 40 days. Perhaps we should add something. And uh, reading of the gospel uh, is one of the ways in which I try to focus more and more on those things. Um, so, so it's not so much giving up. Uh, I know that in some churches they strip the altar on Maundy Thursday uh, and uh, it, it, it remains stripped. Uh, and uh, so, um, yeah, that's not me. <laughs> uh, I think more meditating on the event, uh, not by looking at a crucifix, but by looking at the text of the Gospels. Uh, with all due respect to those who uh, pray looking at Jesus on a crucifix with all due respect to them. Uh, uh, I have a problem with that because he did not remain on that cross. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if, if you want to have a cross in your church, that is fine. Just make sure that he's not on that cross. <laughs> it reminds you of what he did, but it also is a reminder. They took him down from that cross and buried him <clears throat> and he rose again so those are some of the things that motivate me as i approach to good friday and resurrection sunday yeah i, I think that's great great idea and i know uh kinsley has done some of those things uh that you've suggested and really found those helpful and and i just i just think that that's uh from from anybody's perspective whether it be academic i mean you could do it like you said from the greek new testament or you can just even do it in your english bible and have a great absolutely. benefit from that absolutely Amen. so talking about the passion week in particular even though i think it was uh john macarthur who who noted uh, about your book that even though there's not it's not written to try to you know storm the passion week with a bunch of new ideas you can't help but read through the book and come away with some fresh perspective, which is a great blessing to many people. So I'm, I'm curious from your own, your own take, uh, what are maybe some of the things that you think are maybe a little more unique or maybe not as, as uh, promoted by people who are often commenting on the passion week? What are some not necessarily unique, but fresh perspectives that you give in thinking through the passion week? Certainly. Well, of course uh, we, tend to think that the Passion Week starts with the triumphal entry, and on our calendar it does, but I start off that the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Sorrows, which is a traditional route in the old city of Jerusalem today, did not begin at Pilate's Judgment Hall. It actually began at Caesarea Philippi, and hopefully I can grab people's attention there. And the reason being is in Matthew 16 and also Mark 8, Uh, there's this event where Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah. And then what is often overlooked is that the text says from that point, Jesus began saying, the son of man is going up to Jerusalem. He will be rejected. He will die uh, uh, and, and he will rise again. And that was the first time that Jesus had actually began to talk about his suffering and death. That's often overlooked. So I make the point, and I include a map there, uh, that uh, over a hundred miles to the north of Jerusalem, and um, six months prior to the Passion Week, was when the, quote, Passion began. Because uh, Jesus, a number of times on his way up to Jerusalem, Luke says he set his face as a flint going to Jerusalem. 
a unique expression. Why? Because I'm going up there to be rejected, to suffer and die. So passion, uh, the passion of our Lord, the suffering of our Lord actually began at Caesarea Philippi, not in Pilate's judgment hall. Well, that's just one thing. Uh, uh, and uh, a couple of other things I mentioned uh, that the people who hailed Jesus uh, as he entered into Jerusalem, uh, uh, were uh, the gospel writers say that was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, and I try to show how that is a contrast with another king, Alexander the Great, who came into Jerusalem uh, on his mighty horse, Bucephalus, while Jesus rode in on a donkey. Uh, uh, they both were kings, but different kings. And I also try to uh, uh, celebrate what the crowd say, Baruch Haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a quotation from Psalm 118. They're welcoming him as Messiah. So I try to really root the events of our Lord's passion in the fulfillment of messianic prophecies. And if people don't agree with every one of my interpretations, Okay, but I hope that they will see that the burden of this book is to show how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament messianic prophecies about his suffering, but also about his resurrection. That's so good. And I know, uh, and this is maybe a little bit off topic, but I feel like you're well equipped to answer these kinds of questions. So I'm just going to throw it out there. How would you describe to the listener what kind of expectation the Old Testament paints toward the New Testament? So that when you see the person of Jesus specifically coming to ultimately his sacrifice in the Passion Week, what kind of fulfillment do we see as far as some of the highlights that that you go through in some of your classes as far as other Old Testament passages? Good. Yes, I do also teach a course called Messianic Theology, where we go through all the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. I would say this, that um, it's um, easy to focus on Zechariah 9.9. Okay, that's quoted. But also, Psalm 118 has a role of four times during the week. But uh, Jews were looking for a mighty king. Jews were looking for somebody who basically would bash the heads of the Romans and give them physical redemption. And certainly, you can trace that mighty king conqueror in the Old Testament. But our dear Jewish friends, and they are constantly on my heart in this regard, are only seeing one aspect of that Old Testament met a messianic expectation. Yes, he would be a king, but the Psalms also describe a sufferer. Isaiah 52 and 53 describe a sufferer. Psalm 118, which says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, also says the stone which the builders rejected has become the key stones, a key, uh, key, uh, chief cornerstone. So uh, there's this theme of reigning and ruling, but there's also this neglected theme, particularly by our Jewish friends, that the Messiah would be rejected, would suffer and die. Uh, they reinterpret Isaiah 53 and make it suffering Israel when the only way it can make any sense is to be describing one who suffers for Israel. So I think that's the burden. And this is what Peter says. The, the, the prophets didn't always understand 
the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. They they saw the glory, but they didn't see the, uh, excuse me, the Old Testament prophets saw the uh, suffering and saw the glory, but didn't always know the time sequence between them. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament says before the glory, before smashing the heads of Israel's enemies and reigning supreme, the Messiah must come to suffer and die. And such passages as Psalm 22, uh, Psalm 118, Isaiah 53 describe, first of all, before the glory is the suffering. And that is what our Jewish friends need to see, that both are true. But in his first coming, he suffers. And in his second coming, he reigns and he's in glory. Mm. Yeah, that, that's so good. And I really appreciate how you how you stated that. I think one of the things I try to encourage people to remember is just because a passage isn't necessarily quoted verbatim doesn't mean that's what you shouldn't have as a theological backdrop for understanding that. And like you said, Isaiah uh, 53, Psalm 22, a very important understanding of the Messiah's role. I, I appreciate you mentioning that. One of the things that you noted, uh, which is kind of a good good point to talk about this a little bit is the rejection of the Messiah. And it's often a big discussion point on how the crowd can reject the Messiah at the end of the Passion Week and yell for him to be crucified when you seem to have such a magnanimous reception early on in the week. And so I know you have some thoughts about that. You want to, you want to share those with us? Yes. uh, Chapter eight, one of my subtitles is those quote fickle unquote Jews. I do think, and I don't think it's intentionally by by Christian writers, I don't think they think it through, but when they say the Jews who hailed him as Messiah at the triumphal entry are now calling for his blood in a matter of four days, how fickle they are. Well, a close reading says that was a different crowd on Friday morning. I even quote the uh, New Testament scholar A.T. Robertson, Uh, in that regard, that those who call for his blood on Friday morning were a different crowd. And the Gospels say that. Uh, It says on Friday morning, the ones who were saying, crucify him, give us Barabbas, were stirred up by the priest. I wouldn't put it past them that they were offering some money to this motley crowd gathered there on Friday morning to call for Barabbas. Because through the week, we find uniformly the common people are hearing him gladly. How did he get away with uh, cleansing the temple? Because there were a group probably of young Jewish guys standing around him saying, go get them, Jesus. Uh, These guys have been sticking it to us financially for years. They're overcharging for the lamb. They're, they're charging an exorbitant rate for the money changing. Uh, uh, go get them, Jesus. Now, I'm not quoting. It doesn't say that. <laughs> but, but it says that the common people were hearing him. And it says at times the high priestly order were trying to get at him, but they couldn't because the common people were listening to him and appreciating what he had to say. So I think it's a different group. Remember, this thing happened very quietly in the middle of the night. Uh, When Judas said, I can turn him over to you, why did he do that? Because they couldn't arrest him on, on Monday 
Tuesday and Wednesday because they couldn't get near him. But Judas says, I know where he goes. He's been there Tuesday night and Wednesday night. He'll be there Thursday night. There'll be no crowds there. I can take you to him. That's why the Jesus followers were asleep when uh, Jesus was arrested in the garden. And I, I'm going to think that some of them were still waking up on Friday morning when he was before Pontius Pilate and the dirty deed had been done and he had been whipped and carry, and, and began to carry his cross by and on the cross by 9 a.m. This was a different crowd. It's not fickle Jews. It's uh, uh, a, a religious leadership that says, we have our privileged position. John 12 says that Caiaphas says this. We have our privileged position. If we don't stop this guy, the Romans are going to come in and take away our place from us. They had a vested interest that they did not want this messianic pretender, as they thought he was, to take over, and then they would lose their privileged position. That's where the great guilt lies. Now, unfortunately, they made the decisions for the nation. So the nation, you might say, did reject him because the leaders pronounced him as a heretic, as a blasphemer, and turned him over, though it was a wrong charge, as a rabble rouser and a messianic king pretender. They had a vested interest. I think that many of the uh, Jesus followers probably heard, do you know what happened to Jesus? He's already on the cross, and there he is at 9 a.m., too late for them to come and offer any opposition. I don't think I ever necessarily heard that till probably either the end or even after my seminary training, uh, but it it obviously paints a different picture than, than a lot of preaching that you'll hear on Easter weekend. Yes, I realize I may be rattling the boat here, but I love my ministering brethren. I just ask them to read the Gospels a little closer and see how popular Jesus was on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before he, quote, went dark, as I say, uh, middle of the day. Uh, he turns from the public ministry, and, and from Wednesday noon on, he's only ministering to his disciples. Hmm. Well, it's uh, really a good, fresh food for thought, as it were, so appreciate you uh, sharing that. I know there's probably a couple other things. Uh, I mean, I would say there's there's plenty of things that are are have a fresh perspective to them in the book. Uh, a couple a couple things that maybe you you'd want to share share with us. I know you have uh, a small uh, I don't know gripes not the right word, but you have a small bit of disagreement on definitions for some of the place names, perhaps. Uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, how often do we hear about the Garden of Gethsemane? But we're surprised when we read that there is no exact expression, quote, Garden of Gethsemane. What we read in the Synoptic Gospels is Gethsemane. He went to Gethsemane. And Gethsemane uh, in the Aramaic and also with the Hebrew root uh, roots there means olive press. So at some place on the Mount of Olives, where there was an olive press is where Jesus went. And as a matter of fact, the gospels say he would go there with his disciples at night. He would teach in the temple. And I think from at least Tuesday night on, he has gone to Gethsemane, the olive press. There is one of the most reliable sites 
in the gospel history can be pointed out today. And many scholars, not just evangelical scholars, have pointed out that this cave has the remnants in it of what looks like an olive press. And it has room enough for 12 together there. Uh, in that cave was Gethsemane. No doubt, uh, Peter, there was a garden nearby. Uh, Jesus leaves uh, the 11. He takes Peter, James, and John and goes a little way away from the cave to where there was a garden. So I am saying there was a garden near Gethsemane. I'm just saying that there is no expression garden of Gethsemane. Now that doesn't really uh, change our theology at all. Also, there's uh, in the hymns, there was a green hill far away without a city wall, Mount Calvary. There was a hill called Calvary. There is absolutely not one reference at all that Calvary uh, uh, was on a hill. As a matter of fact, it was probably on a, fat, a flat place right outside one of the gates, a very visible place where people could see the crucified people. Uh, Calvary is the Latin for Golgotha, and Golgotha is Aramaic for skull, and Calvarius is the Latin for skull. It was skull place, probably because it was a place of crucifixion, and also nearby was a place of, of a cemetery, so it was called skull place, or Golgotha. Now, that doesn't mean that when we sing about a hill called Mount Calvary, you should close your hymnal and sit down. I'm not saying that. It doesn't really affect any interpretation, but um, uh, it does. It's good if we try to be biblical. <laughs> so let's just talk about Golgotha and let's just talk about Gethsemane. Yeah, I like it. I was going to say, even though our theology might not change, we might have to get rid of some songs because those things have made <laughs> it into our lyrics quite a bit. So uh, yeah, yeah. better be careful with that. Uh, that's really good, though. It's it's. I agree with you. I think it's really helpful to try to be as biblical with our definitions uh, as possible. So I appreciate you saying that. Uh, one one other thing I think uh, that would be really helpful. Uh, I know that you. I uh, have done some thinking and some writing on John 19 and just how uh, Jesus uh, gives this final great cry. Everything is finished. Uh, maybe you could give us your, your thoughts on that. Too. Yes. Uh, and this is probably where I'll get more pushback because people are just so used to preaching it and, and, and hearing it. I understand that. But uh, I'm not questioning anything to do with the atonement. I'm not questioning anything to do with redemption. But I am questioning that Tetelestai is not primarily talking about the finishing of the atonement. It's talking about the finishing of the messianic prophecies about his suffering. John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. In the context, that exact word, tetelestai, uh, just appears two verses earlier. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things tetelestai had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. So two verses prior to that, the verb teleo, meaning to accomplish or to finish, uh, is used of the fulfilling of scripture. And uh, so in the context there, Jesus is talking about Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, uh, has been finished, has been accomplished. He's talking about in his 
uh, crucifixion and suffering, Old Testament prophecies were, were fulfilled. Also, in Luke 18, as Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, he says, when I go there, tetelestai, he uses the same verb, uh, all of the things written about me will be fulfilled. So prior to the crucifixion, he uses that same verb about uh, scripture fulfillment. The Apostle Paul in Acts 13 in that sermon uh, in Antioch says, when they had finished all things about Jesus, they took him down from the cross. And that word finished or fulfilled is the same word, teleo, same verb that is used in John 19.30 and 19.28. So uh, Jesus leading up to Jerusalem uses it as to the scriptural fulfillment, Luke 18. Paul, describing what they did to Jesus, said they fulfilled the things that were written about him, Acts 13. And that's why I think when Jesus says it is finished, he is saying Isaiah 53 is accomplished. Psalm 22 is accomplished. That's why he uh, 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 said, I am thirsty. That fulfills scripture. So I'm not questioning uh, the uh, atonement uh, uh, or, or saying that Jesus' work is, is not important. It's absolutely vital. God forgive that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But this is a matter not of questioning uh, uh, the atonement. It's a matter of, que of questioning an interpretation of a verse. So I think Jesus is saying, scripture is finished. And he bowed up his, uh, his head and gave up his spirit. Mm. Yeah, that, I really appreciate that. That's, uh, that's very, very well uh, summarized and, and appreciate you sharing that. I know each time you, uh, you, I mean, you've done, how many books have you written now? It's, uh, well, there's a couple still waiting. Uh, Second Clement is still waiting with the editor, right. and another, can you believe, fourth commentary on James is still. Uh, okay, wow. The, uh, you know, it's it's in the pipeline with Kriegel. Uh, so once those get out, it'll be about fifteen. Okay, 15. well, praise the Lord. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. So I know when you're working through things like that, you know, things kind of jump out in a fresh way. Uh, having taught, you know, the life of the Messiah for so long, been to Israel over 50 times, if I remember correctly, right? 51 times. One of these days, I'll get it right, Peter. <laughs> yeah. One, <laughs> so, I mean, you've had, you've had a lot of experience. Was there anything that jumped out in, in a new way while you were writing this book or anything that maybe was uh, freshened or made anew, if you will, in your, in your thought process? I think it's solidified in my own thinking the uh, importance of the ascension and Jesus' priestly work. I also teach Hebrews and Greek exegesis. So for a long time, I have been fascinated by the importance of the writer of Hebrews in, in portraying the death and the ascension and, and, uh, and work of Jesus in the Holy of Holies as a back, excuse me, as a fulfillment of Leviticus 16, which says that the high priest would kill that animal, then take the blood into the Holy of Holies, where he would finish the atonement there by sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. And I saw that, I think, afresh this time, because Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, when Christ appeared, he entered 
through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Here it comes. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So the role of our Savior, uh, and that's why Psalm 110 is so important to the writer of Hebrews, uh, said at my right hand. When uh, when Jesus said that to Caiaphas, when he said, tell us if you're the Messiah, he says, you've said it and you will see the son of man uh, uh, at the right hand of the power on high, at the right hand of the power on high. Uh, uh, and uh, that was very, very important. The crowning uh, achievement of his salvific saving work was the application of that blood for us obtaining eternal redemption for us and seeing the book of Hebrews afresh and seeing it against the background of Leviticus 16 has given me a deeper appreciation. And that is why I would say to our Roman Catholic friends, don't leave him on the cross. <laughs> don't leave him on the cross. He, he not only rose again, he rose to heaven and entered the holy place in heaven with his own blood. There he obtained eternal redemption for us mm, that's that's really good yeah that's 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 so neat to need to hear well i know you got a busy schedule today so i won't keep you too much longer uh i, I will ask you one more question uh when uh we we were exchanging emails a little bit and even before we started recording talking just a little bit about the unique experience that we have uh with this coronavirus, uh, so much is taking place over Zoom now with education and everything like that. And, and I think, you know, given what pastors are having to endure at this point, I know there are a variety of pastors who, who listen to this podcast and, you know, I, I want to share your wisdom with everybody too. Given the, uh, the current distress that we face, I suppose, as uh, pastors and ministers and just trying to help people and encourage them. How, how do you think that that should look now when when many people are under lockdown orders and things like that? I know you've probably given that some thought. Uh, you you care about people, so you just don't want to abandon them. So, so what's your thought process behind uh, the situation that we find ourselves in? Thank you for asking that. And I've just come to this conviction. It's fresh. This afternoon, I will record a Passover demonstration for the Masters University. It's going to go live in the next couple of days. Uh, now, what's that got to do with your question? Just this. Passover uh, is not experienced in the synagogue. Uh, Passover is experienced in the home. Uh, Wednesday night, Jews will gather and remember the Passover events of the killing of the lamb and the sprinkling of the blood, so forth and so on. And as I noticed that, I said, well, how, how appropriate. Um, Passover is not observed in the synagogue. It's observed at home. So on Wednesday night, um, when Jews gather, and whenever we gather to remember our Lord's death, let's remember this, that in Exodus chapter 12, there was a plague going on, a plague going on outside their houses. They had that blood, they had that meal, they observed Passover, but God, when he saw the blood, passed over their house and protected that house from what? The plague 
the plague of the killing of the firstborn. We have the privilege of gathering together with our family, whether we're Jewish, observing the Passover or not, reading this text, thinking of the Lord's work, while a plague is outside our house, Peter, a plague that we can be spared from if we stay inside. And so how, how appropriate that we can think about the awful plague going around the world, but gather hopefully in the safety of our own homes, even as those ancient Jews gathered. That Thursday evening, Jesus gathered with his disciples to observe that time when they were spared from the plague. May that come to our hearts and minds as we gather this week, Peter. Oh, that's so good. Thank you so much, Dr. Varner. That's that's really helpful in just thinking through how to, uh, you know, how, how to minister in our families and um, use this opportunity for God's glory, meditating on the truths of Scripture that way. That's that's really Amen. helpful. Well, Thanks, so much, I let for you, Thanks so well, much for having me, Peter. Before I let you go, can you tell us where we could get your book? Yes, you can get it on Amazon. Now, Keep in mind, when you go to Amazon, it's in three formats, paperback, hardback, and also it's in Kindle. For the last week and a half, they have not had the paperback and hardback copies in stock. They say temporarily unavailable. I would like to think, Peter, it's because millions of people are buying (laughs) the book. I think it's a combination maybe of that, but also... um, Amazon is actually putting their emphasis on stocking things to help people physically during this. But if you have a Kindle, download the Kindle. It's only $9.95. And also the photographs of my colleague, Brian Morley, are even more beautiful in the Kindle. So you might have to wait to get a hard copy, but you can get the Kindle right away on Amazon. Also, if you go to my publisher, Fontis Press, you can get hard copies from them, Pontus Press. Well, a special thanks to Dr. Varner for joining us on the podcast today. I hope you can tell that he's just made such a great impact in my life. And one of the best times of my life has been actually being his teaching assistant and just being able to see him in the classroom, teach his heart fully involved in it. And so I'm really thankful to be able to learn from him in many ways. And I hope it's been helpful to you as well to just see his passion for the Passion Week and hopefully during this week where we can focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and even as Dr. Varner mentioned, the ascension, that this can be a very precious time indeed. Well, as always, love to hear feedback on the episodes. You can reach out to me at peter at petergaming.com. You can visit my website at petergaming.com, or you can visit the seminary's website, shepherds.edu. And as always, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you, and make his face shine upon you.